So let's dive in. Question number one for us today. Oh, Dave, will you go back to that slide? I probably should have mentioned that. It is not too late uh, to ask your question. Um, so we have one more week after this week. So last, next week is our last week of the Q&A series. But if you want to um, get your question in, you can still do that. You can do it through email, text, or you can write in your question on the back of your connection card and put it in the offering basket today. Um, there have been some issues with people trying to email their questions, and we finally discovered why. Um, so the email address should be Q with and spelled out, not the symbol for and. Um, Q and, A-N-D-A, at yourelement.org. So if you want to email them, uh, you can do it at that email address, or you can text anonymously or fill out your uh, question. You're more than welcome to email me personally, and you're also more than welcome to write it out on a piece of paper or type it out. Several people have done this and just hand it to me. Um, they'll all get counted either way. So let's jump in. Question number one for today. Is it biblical to use credit cards or have a balance that accumulates interest? Um, this is a great question. So let's vote on it because we don't all want to just sit here um, and, and not do anything. Let's get involved. So if you would say, I think the Bible um, would permit me to have a credit card um, or to have a balance that accumulates interest, obviously we're thinking negative interest, not, not a savings account that is growing. So how many of you would say, I think the Bible would permit it, I think it's okay? Okay, those hands came up so slowly. Nervous. Okay, how many of you are going to say, no, I don't think the Bible would permit it, I think the Bible would prohibit using credit cards or having a balance that accumulates interest? All right, some of you have abstained from this vote. Um, we'll see if, if that pays off later today. Um, okay, so this question is a little difficult. Um, first of all, the question asks, is it biblical? Um, well, to be real honest, no, it's not. Um, the, nowhere in the Bible does it say you should have a balance that accumulates interest. Nowhere does it say that you should uh, be going into debt. Um, but I think... Um, really what the person who's asking this question is wanting to know, will the Bible allow it? Certainly it's not biblical in the fact that the Bible isn't commanding or pushing us there, but will the Bible allow it? So let's look at a few scriptures together. Um, Proverbs 22.7 says this, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. Proverbs 21.20 says, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling. But a foolish man devours all he has. And 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Um, we did a series in February of this year called So Help Me God. And we talked about finding freedom in our lives. And we, we talked about several different aspects of freedom. And one of those was financial freedom. Uh, if you're really interested in this topic... And want to know what the Bible has to say about your money, uh, how to handle your money, what is God's desire and plan for your finances. Um, I would encourage you to go to our website where you can download the sermon audio. Uh, you can listen to it from our website. You can subscribe to the podcast if you'd like. Because I deal much more in depth on this topic than I'm going to do right now because I devoted a whole message to it. Um, here's what I would say is using credit cards or having a balance that accumulates interest, is it sin? My response would be, it could be. Um, 
The Bible makes it clear uh, that we are to find our satisfaction in Christ. Um, That we don't live to please other people. And that we are supposed to be good stewards of the life and the resources that God has given to us. And so I think there's too many specifics that go behind everybody's personal situation to be able to say with an overarching theme that yes or no, having credit cards or using uh, consumer debt is really what we're talking about here. Um, Would it be considered sin? If you're buying things with money that you do not have to impress people that you don't really even like, or if you're using credit cards to try to fill a void in your life because you're unhappy, and rather than turning to Christ, rather than finding your satisfaction where it was always meant to be found, if you're trying to find it by buying toys and trinkets with money that you don't have, then I would say, uh, undoubtedly, that would be sinful. Um, for the same reason why it would be sinful for you to turn to another relationship or to a substance or to a hobby to fill a void in your life rather than finding satisfaction in Christ. Um, And now, is it always sinful? Um, I would say, from my perspective of the way I read the Bible, um, having credit cards or being um, engaged in consumer debt is not always sinful, but it would be considered unwise. Um, I think there are some forms of debt that accumulate interest um, that could even be considered neutral ground. Um, Buying a home and having a mortgage, I think, can fall into a neutral ground. Uh, Now, certainly, it's easy to buy a house that's way more than you can afford. Um, I've owned a number of houses um, in my life, and it always amazes me when I go to get a loan how much the bank is willing to give me way more than I know that I could afford to pay back. Uh, And so if you're buying a house that you can't afford and you're buying a house really because you're trying to set um, set, uh, a a standard, if you're trying to impress people, if you're trying to to live up to a certain standard of life that you're not really at because you want to put across an image, then maybe that home, uh, buying that home would be sinful for you. But I think um, that used appropriately, things like a mortgage um, can actually be wisdom uh, in that we know that, that generally there's a return on your money and a long-term gain. So, um, my answer would be it is not always sinful. I think that there's too many personal circumstances involved there um, to be able to make that distinction. Uh, but I think for the most part, many times, especially when we talk about credit cards, I think it's unwise, especially to carry a balance um, over the long term. So, all right, question number two. How can you tell the voice of God from the voice of the devil? This is a really good question, and I, and I would be, I, I, I'm not going to ask this one. Maybe this one's a little too personal to vote on, but I wouldn't be surprised if many of us have asked this question before, or maybe we ask it a little differently, like how do I know whether I'm hearing God's voice or it's just my own mind telling me to do something? How do I know it's really God? Uh, this is a great question, and I think the Bible gives us some principles for how to understand this. Uh, when I was in high school, um, I, uh, I had some girlfriends, and I had one particular girlfriend uh, when I was a sophomore in high school. Her name was LaDawn, and uh, she, I met her at church. We were in the youth group together, and um, LaDawn had a sister in the youth group as well, 
And when you looked at them side by side, they looked nothing alike. Um, LaDawn was about my height, not now, but at the time. Um, and she had long, dark hair, and she looked like an athlete, because she was. Um, and her sister was very short, um, not very athletic, and had bleach blonde short hair. Okay? And even their facial structures looked nothing alike. Um, one resembled the dad, one resembled the mom, and they did not look like they belong together. You know, you see sometimes siblings, and you're like, it's obvious you're brother and sister. And then sometimes you're like, are you sure someone wasn't adopted? Um, and so that's kind of what this was like. They looked nothing alike. But what I quickly found out when I started dating LaDon in high school is on the phone, they sound exactly alike. And um, I just got myself into a number of situations. Of course, this was back before cell phones, so I didn't have a direct access to my girlfriend. I had to access the whole family and call the house phone, right? So I would call, and her sister would pick up, and they had caller ID, which meant they knew I was calling, and it gave them enough time to make plans to do things that were not very nice to me. And so, um, so a lot of times she would answer, the sister would answer the phone and, and would, would greet me as though it were my girlfriend. And I didn't know the difference for a while and uh, would just start blabbing on and talking. And, and sometimes they would just let me go as long as, as long as until I could figure it out. Um, and, and then eventually she'd go, I think you were calling for my sister. And I'd be like, oh, man. Um, now, let me tell you, the longer we dated, the better I got at recognizing their voices on the phone. Um, eventually, I got to know the nuances, the subtleties of their voices, um, that when the, when the sister answered the phone, I knew it right away, and I wouldn't make that same mistake that I used to make. Um, the same is true with the voice of God. Jesus talks uh, in, in John chapter 10 about how um, he is the shepherd and his sheep know his voice. The more time we spend with Jesus, the more that we're trying to be sensitive to hearing his voice, whether that be in church as we're reading the Bible, through prayer, um, through the wise counsel of other people, and we start to test it and, and pray about it and think on it, the more we pay attention and are intentional, the better we get at recognizing God's voice. And obviously when we say God's voice, maybe we need to clarify that we don't hear anything audibly and we certainly don't hear it in our ears, but we have impressions in our minds and our hearts and a prompting from the Holy Spirit to do one thing or another. And the more we pay attention and the more we work at it and the more we listen and the more we engage with the things of God, the better we get and being able to understand and distinguish his voice. Um, here's a few scriptures that I want to read to you. Um, in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And when he talks about false prophets, he's talking about bad teachers. People who are teaching things contrary to the Bible. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, that does not confess Jesus is from God, uh, is, 
excuse me, does not confess Jesus is not from God. Um, starting uh, John 8, starting in verse 42, it says this. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so one of the things we need to do when we feel like God is speaking to us or we're being pushed or prompted towards an activity or an action or attitude or a belief, um, the first thing we need to do is to test it. We need to test to figure out, is this from God? And the more we do that, the more we get sensitive to God's prompting and His voice and, and, the less, and the more confident we'll be and the less nervous we'll be about getting it wrong. Here's a few thoughts just basically from what we just read. Uh, one of them is throughout the Bible, and specifically in Numbers 23, Titus 1, and Hebrews 6, um, the Bible teaches us that God cannot lie. And so in opposition to Satan, um, who the Bible calls the father of lies, God cannot lie. Uh, let me... Here's some questions you can ask yourself as you're feeling prompted towards something about whether it's God calling you or not. Is the voice pointing you towards Jesus? Is it making you admire or trust him more? Um, is it in unity with the truth as revealed in scripture? Um, as you're being encouraged or pushed or prompted or you feel like God's speaking to you, does it line up with what we know about God in the scripture? Because God does not lie and he's not going to be false or give you false thoughts or impressions. And so if you're feeling prompted, you test it against the scriptures because God's not going to contradict himself. And if there's something that's contradictory to the, to the scriptures, then you know it's not from God. Uh, is it prompting or promoting behaviors, thoughts, attitudes, and actions that bring you into maturity in Christ. We talked about this a little bit last week, about how God's ultimate goal for us, or I think it was in week one, is maturity in Christ, growing to be more like Jesus. Is what you're feeling or thinking pushing you towards that? Is it pushing you towards maturity in Christ? Um, or is the voice causing you to doubt? Is it pulling you away from Jesus, away from the Bible or trust in the Bible? Is it pulling you away from fellow Christians who love you and want to be there for you? Is it pulling you away from the church? Is it promoting behaviors, thoughts, attitudes, and actions that would make you less like Christ or pull you away from maturity in Christ? And are there contradictions between the voice and the Bible? And so if there's doubt in us, when we feel like God's speaking to us, we have to test the spirits. We've got to test what we're being told or prompted to do. And the first place we start is with the Bible. And we start asking some of these questions about where will this lead me? What is it doing in my heart? Is this pushing me towards healthy relationships with other Christians or is it pulling me away? Is it pushing me toward the church or is it pulling me away? Is it pushing me towards trusting the Bible more or is it making me and causing me to doubt? And so uh, I think some of these questions will help you a little bit 
uh, as you seek to try to discern and decide, is it God speaking to you or is it not? And the more time you spend talking to God and being sensitive to Him and being sensitive to those promptings in you, the better you get at identifying that it's God's voice and not someone else's. Um, We're going to enter into a time similar to what we did last week called The lightning round, where we're going to take a couple of the questions that you've asked that kind of evolve around the same theme, um, and and we're going to answer them uh, a little bit quickly and and take a look at at some of the questions that you've been asking in a little different way. Hey, Element Church. Today for our lightning round segment, we're going to talk a little bit about the Old Testament. That's part of the part of your Bible that was written in the time before Jesus' birth and comprises about two-thirds of your Bible. We've had a number of questions come in about how to read and understand the Old Testament. Uh, and then some people have voiced some concerns um, that they've had as they read the Old Testament. So we're going to address some of those together today uh, during our lightning round segment. So question number one. Uh, Was Jonah and the whale a metaphor? Uh, This is a great question and one that's been a point of debate for many people and for a long time. Uh, Let's set a few standard ground rules for understanding the Old Testament. I think it'll help us answer this question as well as some of the others that we're going to cover. Uh, In the Old Testament, we have several different literary genres or you could say categories that help us to better understand what we're reading. Uh, Here are just a few, and I think specifically these are ones that pertain to this specific question. Uh, Number one, there are what we call historical narratives. These are true stories about real people and real events. Uh, They give us important information, but also serve to teach us. Not every person and event that ever happened uh, is recorded in the Bible. Um, So the writers of the text had to be selective. They had to choose what they were going to include and not include. Um, So understanding why they chose certain people, places, and events is significant. So even historical narratives, while they're there to give us information, um, also serve um, for us to grow and and have a redemptive uh, purpose. Uh, Number two, um, there are what we call types. A type is a person, place, thing, or story that foreshadows something to come that is much greater. Um, This doesn't mean that uh, types aren't real or true, um, but just that their primary function is to foreshadow something else, primarily Jesus. So think of it this way. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament, as an example, was real. It was actually practiced, and it was even commanded to be done by God. But its primary purpose was to be a type or a foreshadow of Christ and what his sacrifice would mean. And we really only understand its full meaning looking back uh, in the light of Jesus. And that's true for all types in the Old Testament. Uh, Number three, there are metaphors. This is similar to a type um, with a few subtle nuances. A metaphor is a comparison of one thing to another to highlight either similarities or differences. And then here's number four. This is a big one. Allegory. Um, An allegory is a story that has a hidden or deeply embedded meaning. An allegory can be true, but it doesn't have to be true um, because the purpose in telling it is not to convey historical facts, 
but rather to illustrate a deeper meaning or message. In the New Testament, Jesus' parables would be considered allegory. When Jesus starts a parable with, there was a man who, um, we don't know if he's telling us about a real-life person and their experience, or if it's a made-up story. But it doesn't really matter because the meaning behind the story is still true regardless. Uh, Jonah and the whale. Um, some people have said that this is an unhistorical allegory, probably an untrue or at least an exaggerated story told for its deeper meaning and value. People say that the details of the story are too extreme for it to be real, that there's no fish large enough to do this, and Jonah surely uh, couldn't survive that. Um, let, me, let me just say, that's a really bad reason for classifying a particular story. We don't put Old Testament text into certain boxes or categories because of how we feel about them. We look for clues within the text to lead us, and we also look to see how other people in the Bible treat and react to the story. Uh, honestly, God created everything out of nothing. The details of the story of Jonah are nothing to him uh, to figure out and take care of. Uh, Jesus actually referenced the story of Jonah in Matthew 12. He talked about Jonah in a way that assumes its historical accuracy and a real occurrence. Personally, I would classify the story of Jonah as a real historical event acting as a type for Christ, meaning it's a foreshadow of what Christ would be and do. Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish, and then he proclaimed God's truth to the entire city of Nineveh, and everyone in the city repented and turned back to God. That's a foreshadow of Christ being in the grave, or we could say the belly of the earth, for three days, and then resurrecting and revealing himself, in which people have since been hearing the truth, repenting, and turning back to God. Uh, question number two, uh, Moses. How did the Egyptian princess know that Moses was a Hebrew? Uh, so in Exodus, we learn that while the Israelite people were enslaved in Egypt, they began to grow in strength and numbers. This worried the Pharaoh that one day they would grow to such large numbers that they would be able to take over the Egyptian people. So he handed out a decree that required every Israelite newborn baby boy be killed. Uh, when Moses' mother gave birth to him, she tried to hide him, but being a baby, he was too loud to hide uh, for very long. So she put him in a basket at the edge of the Nile River, hoping that someone, probably an Egyptian, would come by and have compassion on the child, save and adopt them. Um, she may have even known that the princess of Egypt would come to that very place. That may have been a frequent place for her. Um, the Egyptians and the Israelites, uh, you need to know this, while they're from the same general region of the world, are two different races and ethnicities. So just as you can look at a baby today, and while you may not be 100% accurate, um, can make some evaluation uh, of the ethnicity or race of that child, or at least be able to, to recognize if there's a difference between um, their race and yours. Well, the Egyptian princess was fully aware of the Israelites who were slaves in Egypt, and probably even have a, had a heightened sensitivity to the origins of the baby she found in a basket by the river, um, knowing the decree that her father had given. And so I, I think it was probably pretty obvious to her um, when she saw the baby that it was an Israelite. Uh, question number three, um, how can you explain people, some people living in, uh, living hundreds of years? So this is a reference to the Old Testament where there's stories um, early in Genesis, many of the first people lived five, six, ten times longer than our average lifespan today. Uh, the Bible doesn't give us specifics about how, how or why this is. There have been lots, lots of attempts by theologians and scientists to kind of come together and come up with some kind of explanation. Uh, what we do know 
is that death was not a part of the original creative order. And any lifespan, even one that spans several hundred years, is extremely short compared to how life was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden. So we also know that we inherit our sinful nature as a part of the curse of sin. Uh, my personal opinion uh, is that the effects of sin on the world and human body were not as great in those early generations, and that as time has progressed, the curse and fracturing of this world by sin has worsened, and it's taken its toll on everything and everyone. And that's why um, the lifespan is so much shorter now than it was um, for those first generations in Genesis. So, uh, question number four. Um, why did God choose the Israelites as the chosen people? Uh, this is a great question, and one that I think teaches us a lot about the character of God. If we go back to the origins of the Israelite people, uh, they are also called the Hebrews or the Jews at different points in history, by the way. Um, we find that God didn't actually choose the Israelite nation. He created it. God found a man that no one else on earth uh, would ever have chosen to do something special. Abraham came from very humble beginnings. He was very old. His wife was old. They didn't have any children. Uh, and his wife, Sarah, was not only too old to have children, um, but even when she was young, she couldn't conceive. Uh, so God worked in them and through them for something very, very special. He made a promise to Abraham that he would give him more descendants than could ever be counted and that God would bless Abraham and his family so that they could be a blessing to the rest of the world. God didn't play favorites by choosing one nation over another um, or did he, he didn't choose a nation that was already big and powerful and ready for the task God had in store for them. Um, God started in the most humble and unlikely way so that he would be the one to get all the glory, uh, which is good news for all of us, that God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't only pick the best of the best. Um, and God doesn't wait for us to get ourselves ready before he does something in and through us. God takes special delight in picking the ones uh, who no one else would pick. Picking people full of problems, issues, insecurities, and bad pasts. And that's the way God gets all the glory when people step back many years later and look at our lives and see all the amazing things God has done. And so God actually created the nation of Israel for a special purpose. And he blessed them in many ways so that they could be a blessing. And ultimately that was fulfilled um, through Jesus Christ because Jesus came uh, in in that part of the world, born of two young Jewish parents, um, raised in the Jewish faith because Jesus was the ultimate blessing who's going to bless the world. I hope a few of these answers have maybe helped you in reading the Old Testament, understanding um, how we look at it, how we interpret it, um, and will help you as you go back to read um, more about uh, the great stories, uh, the beautiful pictures of our faith that all lead up and point to Jesus. All right, so we need to jump in and answer our final question for the day, even though this has several questions embedded in it. Uh, this is one that has been probably our second most commonly asked question, or at least a version of it, um, throughout the weeks. We've had more than 50 questions come in. Uh, last week we answered the most popular question, why do good things happen to, why do bad things happen to good people? And, uh, it, and if you are interested in that, I'd encourage you to go to our website and listen to last week's 
sermon um, as we explored what the Bible has to say about it. But uh, this week, I want us to look at um, a question we love to ask, and we all fill in the blank a little bit differently. Um, and, and here's generally what it is. What happens to people who... And then you can fill in the blank. And we're going to talk about several of those today. What happens to people who commit suicide? Uh, what happens to babies or infant or the mentally disabled uh, if they're not able to understand the gospel when they die? What happens to people uh, who never have access or the opportunity to hear the gospel? Um, and so we're going to talk about a little bit, uh, a few of those things today and try to wrap our minds around um, what happens to people who. Before we really answer the specifics, I want us to set some ground rules about what happens when we're reconciled back to God um, and, and really look at some of the process that takes place um, when we, we love to use this word, get saved, um, which is a biblical word. Uh, sometimes people are confused about what it means, and we'll talk about it a little bit. Uh, here's a few examples of some of the questions that were asked. Um, what does the Bible say about those who commit suicide? What happens to people who aren't? Uh, able to hear or learn about Jesus? Do they go to heaven? There are many different religions that all worship something higher than ourselves. Is this not really God or a version? And wouldn't they all be welcomed into heaven also? And so let's look at some scriptures and set a foundation. I'm not going to have all the text of these scriptures up here. Um, so if you want to write the references down um, on the notes section of your worship guide, you, you're more than welcome to do that. And so let's look at some of the some of the scriptures surrounding what we call maybe salvation, the process of being saved. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I think that's something that we can all recognize as truth. That all of us fall short of God's holy perfection. Um, that all of us have sin in us um, and choose to do things that are contrary to God's will. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the wages of sin is death. All of us are sinful. None of us have been unaffected by sin, and there is no part in us, there's no part of you that isn't affected and fractured by sin. And the penalty for sin is death. And not just physical death, but eternal death, eternally separated from our Creator, the God who is life. And that's the penalty for sin, for all of us, because all of us are sinful, and all parts of us are sinful and affected by sin. Romans 5.8 says this, But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't earn God's love. We didn't get ourselves good enough to the place where he would come and, and love us. Uh, we didn't impress God while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of Christ by the way we live our lives. Jesus died for us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Perish, that we shouldn't face death, which is the penalty for sin. But for whoever would believe in Christ, death is no longer our, our outcome, our future, but that eternal life is. Romans 10.9 says this, but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
that if we'll confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. That word Lord um, doesn't mean, um, yeah, I'll give him him attention every now and then. It means master. It means everything. King. Ruler. That if you'll confess him as Lord, if you'll confess him as the master and the king and the ruler of your life, and believe in your heart with everything in you, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 John 1.9 says, um, If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That when we confess our sinfulness, our brokenness, that we fall short of his glory, that God is faithful and just, and he will come in and forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And then Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, it is, for, it is by faith, for it is by grace through faith that you have been saved. And this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. It is, not, it is not from works so that no one can boast. For it is by grace through faith that you are saved. It is through Jesus. It is in Him. By God's grace. Grace means unmerited favor. We never did anything to earn God's love. While we were still sinners, falling short of God's standard, the penalty for which is death, eternal death, while we were still in that state, Christ died for us so that if we'll confess Him and believe in Him, God will save us. Unmerited favor, grace, through faith, that if we'll believe in Him, whosoever believes in Him. There are two aspects to salvation or being saved. Um, There's a positive and a negative. And when I say negative, I don't mean bad. The positive aspect is that we are saved into a relationship with Jesus. The negative aspect of salvation is that we are saved out of hostility with God. We are saved into a relationship with Christ. That's the positive aspect. The negative is we are saved out of hostility with God. Uh, Unfortunately, many times... When we talk about salvation and being saved, we focus on the negative aspect, the removing of the hostility. And and we talk about, well, we believe in Jesus so that we don't have to go to hell. And, oh yeah, as a byproduct, we get a relationship with God and we get to talk to Him and, and pray to Him. Salvation is about being reconciled to the creator of this universe and the creator of our hearts and souls. 
that we get reunited with the one who loves us more than we can ever understand, who has a great plan for us, and wants to be glorified in and through us. Avoiding hell is a byproduct. Many times, unfortunately, we treat Jesus as a fire insurance policy. Yeah, I'll get a little Jesus so that I can avoid the fire later. That way I'm protected from hell. That's what I want Jesus for. He's that insurance policy. I'll put the card in my wallet and I'll carry it with me in case I ever need it. But I'm not so sure that I'm ready for the whole lordship part. To confess him as Lord. I'm not sure that I'm ready to make him the king and the ruler over my entire life. What I'd really like is for him to take away God's hostility. To to take care of that negative aspect so I don't have to worry about punishment I don't know that I really want God to rule my life because I'm not sure that I'm ready to do what he's asking me to do. The Bible has very bad things to say about people who are in that place in their heart. That if you only want part of Jesus and not all of him, you actually get none. See, what happens is we get just a little Jesus just a little taste, just enough to, to take, take away the scary stuff. You know what happens in, in our world when you get just a little something? I'm in this stage with my kids. It's called an immunization. You get just a little bit of the virus, just a little bit. And it makes you immune to the full thing. You get just a little bit of the flu in the flu shot so that way your body can be prepared to defend the full-on flu when it comes. And I think so many times we keep Jesus at an arm's distance away. Close enough that we can grab a hold of him when we really are desperate and need him. But just far enough away that he won't take over all of our lives. And without realizing it, we get immunized from him. Because we just want a little bit, but we've taught ourselves and learned how to reject him overall. And the Bible has great warnings for those who are like that. If you just want a little Jesus and you don't want all of them, the Bible would say you don't get any in this life or the next. Being saved is about understanding who we are in our place where we stand before God and our desperate need for Him, not just to protect us from bad things to come, but to make us whole again because we recognize we are not whole now. So that's the foundation and the groundwork we're going to lay as we answer some of the specifics. One of the questions was about people who commit suicide. What happens? Um... Here's what we do know from the Bible. We do know that murder is a sin. Uh, I think we can all agree and hear that suicide is a form of self-murder. And I think it's safe to classify suicide as sin. Um, But what happens? Some people say those who commit suicide go to hell. Their reasoning is, once you kill yourself, however that may happen, 
you're dead and you've just committed a sin and you don't have time to repent and to ask for forgiveness of that sin. So you go into death and then into judgment with sin on you. And so you're out of luck. You didn't have a chance to fix it before you came face to face with God. But we know that for Christians, all of our sins have been forgiven. That the scripture we read in Psalm 103 last week, that God has taken our sin or our iniquity and separated them from us as far as the east is from the west. You know what I love about that picture? Well, I love a lot of things. But in a time when people didn't understand that the world was round, and they didn't understand how our world worked, that God was still involved in writing Scripture, because think about it this way. If, if the Bible had said He separates you and your sin as far as the north is from the south, I want you to think about it. You can only go north for so long. And eventually you start heading south again. You can only go south for so long before you eventually start heading north. But there's no end to east and west. Forever you can keep going east. Forever you can keep going west. Before people even had a concept of how our world works, God did. Because He created it. And as David was writing that psalm, he wrote that God separates us from our iniquity as far as the east is from the west. Um, we are forgiven now for all the sins we have ever committed, are in the process of committing, or will commit. The Bible says that when we are saved, that Christ takes our unrighteousness from us. He bore that on the cross, and we are given His righteousness. And so God no longer sees us as sinful and unrighteous. He sees us as Christ was righteous. To say that suicide would send you in hell, even if you're a Christian, would say the cross of Christ isn't very powerful. It's powerful enough to cover some sins, but it's not powerful enough to cover suicide. There is no limit to the blood of Christ and the sins it can forgive. There is no sin, no action you could take that would be so severe Christ's blood isn't strong enough or powerful enough for. And the only sin that the Bible talks about is unforgivable is rejection of Christ. Everything else is forgivable. The blood of Christ is powerful. So we know that even though it would be a sin to take your own life, um, going into judgment before God, that's already been settled. It wouldn't be any different for the person who committed suicide, if that were true, than the person who is driving down the road, sees a, a semi run a red light, and has a bad word go through their mind just before the semi hits them. Wouldn't, wouldn't be any different, right? That's not how it works. God counts us righteous now because the blood of Christ covers our sins. There's also another group of people that would say, People who commit suicide go to hell because a real Christian wouldn't do it. Um, there's a number of instances in the Bible of people who are in very bad, very desperate places. 
There are even several people in the Bible who ask God to kill them. They're so miserable and in deep depression. And rather than punishing them or striking them down or cursing them, God shows great love and compassion to those who are suffering and hurting. Um, Sometimes people get in very dark places. Maybe it's Satan attacking. Maybe it's a mental illness. Maybe it's a chemical imbalance. Um, There are people who are really suffering And throughout the Bible, God has great compassion on those who suffer. The Bible makes it clear that there's no sin the blood of Christ can't cover up. And I think the Bible would say with full support that those who trust in Christ, who who go through the process of salvation that we, we read all the scriptures for earlier, they are saved. And that cannot be taken from you. Jesus says that in John 10, that those who I have, I hold in my hand, and no one, he says in John 10, can snatch them out of my hand. And so even though someone may go to a very dark place, I don't believe that the scriptures in any way teach that that would disqualify them from receiving the benefits of Christ's death. I will say this. Number one, suicide is never the answer. I don't know who asked this question. I don't know if it came from here or Aurora location. Suicide is never the answer. Whatever pain you think you're enduring now pales in comparison to the wake of pain you will leave behind you when you go. As a pastor, I've been a part of too many counseling sessions and funerals of suicides. One suicide funeral is far too many. The pain, the wake of destruction and pain and sorrow that you will leave behind you is far greater than what you think you're experiencing personally now. Two, While I fully believe that those who kill themselves do not disqualify them from heaven, I think there is a real concern for those who want to end their suffering. I would say there needs to be a real examination of your heart. Do you understand grace? Do you understand forgiveness? Do you understand faith and hope and life and purpose Because while suicide is certainly forgivable, what's not forgivable is going into death having never been saved. You don't want to meet God face to face and find out that you never really trusted Him. And if you're at a place of depression and desperation and hopelessness, The answer is not to take matters into your own hands. The answer is to look to Christ, to find hope and life and purpose and value in Him. 
And so I do think it's a very great concern about those who want to take their life if they've really ever experienced grace. My best friend in high school put a gun in his mouth my freshman year of college. I can't tell you how many sleepless nights I've had wondering, did he really believe? What would make him get to that place? What was so bad that he couldn't endure it? Knowing he had a family and a support system of friends and a church who loved him and would have been there with him no matter what. Did he really understand love and forgiveness and grace? I think he did. We had a lot of late night conversation as friends about Jesus and God and our faith, but there have been a lot of sleepless nights for me wondering, did he really get it? Suicide is never the answer. It is never the answer. And if you're wrestling with it today, you cannot leave without talking to someone. You cannot leave with just expressing your heartache and your struggles with somebody who loves you and cares for you and can help you move forward because suicide is never the answer. But committing suicide does not disqualify you from forgiveness. Number two, um, what happens to children or the mentally disabled? Those who don't have the mental capacity for understanding the gospel and responding to it. Um, let me be 100% honest. The Bible is not crystal clear. The Bible is not crystal clear. I wish with all my heart there were a verse that just said explicitly, this is what happens to people who don't have the ability to believe. It doesn't say it. I do have a very strong conviction. And I'm going to read two scriptures for you and let you, let you know why. That I, without any hesitation, believe personally that those who don't have the mental capacity to know and understand um, are in God's presence in heaven today. And let me tell you why I believe that. Um, the first one comes out of 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 19. And um, David is king over Israel, has committed some terrible sins. His life is falling apart. Um, his newborn baby boy that he just had with a woman who he just ha had an affair with and killed her, her husband and married her, um, the baby is terribly sick. And David is desperately praying for God to do something and to heal this baby. And verse 19, but when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the, chi is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And he went into his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. If we can go to the 
Next slide. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And David prayed and fasted and begged God to save his baby, and the baby did not survive. And David's response is he cleaned himself up. He went into the temple and worshiped God, and then he sat down to eat, and there's confusion all around. David, what are you doing? You were so passionate. You didn't eat. You didn't shave. You didn't shower. You didn't do anything but cry out and pray. And now you're going you're gonna to go on about your life? And David says, listen, I asked God, but he didn't do what I asked. What good will it do me to continue in fasting and weeping? What's done is done. I can't bring him back but I'll go to him. David had the confidence in the Lord that although he couldn't bring his child back to him, there would be a day when he got to go to be where his child was. Uh, Here's another one that doesn't deal directly with death, but I think there are some principles that apply. Deuteronomy chapter 1. The Israelites have been wandering the desert and were about to enter the promised land God had for them, but they were terribly rebellious, disobedient, and had no faith and no trust in God. So, God said, you don't get it. You don't get to go in the promised land because you didn't have the faith, because you didn't trust me, because you didn't follow my commandments. And then he says this to the people, just after he told them they weren't going to get the promised land. And as for your little ones who you said would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Now I know this isn't directly about death or heaven, but notice what God does when he punishes the people for their disobedience. He said, but your children who have no knowledge of good and evil... Those who don't understand what's taking place. Those who aren't old enough to grasp what it means to be disobedient to my commandments. Those I'm not going to punish. Does that mean the children were perfect? No. Does it mean that the children had never committed wrong? No. It meant that they weren't at a place to understand wrong and right and what it means. And I think this reflects part of the heart of God. And so I have to be honest and say that the Bible isn't explicit. I do personally believe with all my heart that those who don't have the mental capacity to understand the truth of God and that we're sinful and we need Him to forgive us, I think there's a very special place in God's heart for those. Uh, and that those of us who do believe will see them one day. So this is how we're going to wrap up. What about people who've never heard the gospel or don't have an opportunity to hear? Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, 
says this, For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Um, Here the Bible's clear that we are condemned, not because we haven't heard, but because we're sinful. And that God, through creation, has began the process of revealing himself to all of humanity. But in our selfishness, we've turned from him and refused to acknowledge him and instead replaced him with something created. Rather than worshiping the creator, we worship what is created whether it be in the world or something we create or something we create in our minds. Romans 10, in verse 9 through 17, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And now, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Jesus is the only way. It's not politically correct. It's not comfortable. It doesn't make answering this question easy. But Jesus is the only way. There is no other way. And Paul proposes this idea. How are they going to call him Lord if they haven't believed? How are they going to believe if they haven't heard? And how are they going to hear if nobody has shared with them? There's a couple final thoughts. Number one, um, I've been asked this question a number of times. I don't know who asked this one. It doesn't really matter. Rarely do I get this question from somebody who is passionately involved in sharing their faith and in sharing Christ with others. Usually this question is an accusation against God, as though if he were really fair and loving and just and righteous, how could he punish people who haven't heard? It's really an accusation against God. Because when we read this, Immediately, our, our passions shouldn't be rising up in us about how is this fair. Our passions should be rising up in the fact that people haven't heard, and that weight falls on our shoulders. God has called us to go. 
us to share, us to preach. Because there's people in your office and in your cul-de-sac and in your family who haven't heard. Who don't understand, who don't know. And they're no different than some remote tribe somewhere else who hasn't heard and doesn't understand. This is not an accusation on God. This is a prompting and a call to action for us. Jesus is the only way. And for people to believe, they must hear. And that must come from us. Here's my second thought. God is much more powerful and supreme than any of us. And God is not dependent on man to do what he wants to do. God asks us to get involved, offers blessings for those who get involved, but God is not incapable without you and me. He is fully capable on his own. And I don't know what God is doing and how he does it all over the world. I do know this. There were people in the Bible who God didn't use humans. He just revealed himself to them. Think about the Apostle Paul. Jesus just showed up to to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus and said, basically, hey, Paul, I know you hate me, but now you're going to follow me and you're going to obey me and you're going to be one of mine. And Paul said, yes, sir. Think about Cornelius. Cornelius didn't know Jesus and he didn't understand a lot of things about God, but he did know a few things about God and God and he lived a life that brought honor to God as best as he could. And Jesus showed up to him in a dream. Because Cornelius had been faithful with what he did know. Cornelius had been faithful with what he did see in creation and what he could recognize about God. And then God showed up to him in a dream. And set the stage and the path for Cornelius and his entire family to get saved. Um, I have friends who are missionaries around the world, and I have a number of friends who are missionaries in Muslim countries. And something that I find really interesting that I never knew before until I had close connections to people in Muslim countries is that about 90% of every Muslim who comes to Christ um, is first encountered with Jesus through a dream. Um, I can't tell you how many stories I've heard from my friends in Muslim countries who say, Regularly, I have people who walk up to me on the street and said, Jesus told me to come find you in my dream last night. Will you tell me about him? It happens all the time because in that culture, they value dreams so highly. They take serious credit when a dream happens that God or, or a spirit or someone is speaking to them. And I, hundreds of stories I've heard about people first being encountered by Jesus in a dream. And then going and finding a missionary or a Christian and saying, Jesus told me to find you, will you tell me about him? God is not limited to our activities, but he has called us to go. And there will come a day when we'll answer for how we handled that call to action. Are we prepared to take the message of Christ, who is the only way to be reconciled to God, to the world, starting with our own backyards. Will you pray with me?